0: Welcome to the Master Your Mix podcast. My name is and Navina, and thanks for hanging out with me today. Today, my guest is Ryan Haft, and if you're not familiar with Ryan, Ryan is a musician, producer, engineer based out of Miami. He plays in a band called Capsule, which just released a brand new EP, which is very cool. Definitely recommend checking that out. Uh, but Ryan has worked with a bunch of great artists such as Torch, Mold, Red Fang, and a whole bunch more. And in this episode, we get into a great conversation all about the process of working on heavier music. Ryan works on a lot of doom metal kind of stuff where there's a lot of heaviness and low tunings and saturation and noise and all that kind of stuff. And it's a really challenging genre to work in. He, he does do work in other genres as well, but uh, definitely, you know, with his own band and some of the records that he's done that are some of my favorites, uh, those have been more heavier style. But in this episode, we get into all about working on that kind of music and how to make your songs sound clear when you're dealing with things like low tuning, how to make your song sound big, uh, dealing with things like saturation and room mics and how to get width and stuff like that. It can be very challenging in that genre of music, but Ryan does a really great job of it. So in this episode, we get into all of that kind of stuff here. And even if you're not working on that style of music, a lot of the stuff still applies because when you're working on instruments that are fighting each other, or when you're working on instruments that feel small and you're trying to create that sense of space and width and size in your tracks, everything that Ryan talks about in this episode is definitely very valid and can be a solution to your problems there. So I think that... If you're struggling with any of those issues, you're definitely going to really enjoy this episode because there's a lot of great stuff to learn from it. So with that said, let's just jump right into it. Ryan Half, thank you so much for being on the Master Mix podcast. How's it going, man? Pretty good, man. How are you? Doing great. For people who might not be familiar with you, can you give us a little bit of your background in terms of who you are, what you do, and ultimately how you got into everything you're working on these days?
1: Uh, I am a Miami-based uh, audio engineer. The majority of my work is is in the studio, but I also... Um, do some touring um, front of house and monitor engineering for some bands that I've done over the years. Um, I mean, I I got into playing music. The engineering stems from playing music, which I started, I think, probably in like third or fourth grade. I started playing guitar and, you know, that evolved into playing in bands and starting playing in bands. And then I think a common tale is then that segued into recording with other people and then kind of not... It not coming out the way I wanted it to, so I needed to learn the language to express how, what I wanted, and then, you know, I ended up just buying a couple of microphones and making demos for my bands and making demos for other people's bands and enjoyed it, and that segues into charging some people, and then that segues into spending all your money on equipment, and then you have, <laughs> you have a recording studio, and then you're doing it every day.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> Love it. Did
0: you, uh, when you, you know, you mentioned like trying to learn this stuff so you could speak the language, like, did you think at that point that you were going to pursue this as like something to record your your own bandwidth or like, was it just like more or less just to talk to other people or was, were you actually kind of intending on, on doing this as a, you know, more of a career or something?
1: I think I had the desire to, I guess, um, I've always kind of been very like uh, like, I think I can do this myself type of thing. Like I, you know, I had a little stint in trying to silk screen t-shirts cause I was like, yeah, I, I can figure out how to do that and stuff like that. But it's, yeah, it definitely started with, you know, recordings not coming out how I wanted them to. And I didn't know how to express like what I really wanted other than just, you know, your generic, like it should be darker or brighter or, or whatever. You know, I think once I started doing it, you know, I had control over how bright or dark everything was and, plugins and this type of thing it just became fun and you know it's i mean it's kind of a puzzle right like recording just kind of feels like a puzzle you're putting everything together and i'm kind of addicted to doing that and completing them and solving puzzles so
0: (laughs) that's an interesting way of looking at it but i i totally agree with that and i can see exactly where you're coming from with it because yeah like every project is a new puzzle and you're you're just figuring out the pieces and trying to make it all work together
1: yeah totally so,
0: as far as uh, learning this side of things, um, obviously, it sounded like you were kind of just tinkering on your own for a little bit, but did you ever get any sort of, sort of formal training or was it all just do it yourself and learn on your own?
1: I, I had a little bit. I kind of was like just doing it. And then at some point, I was like, well, I have to t- get some credits in school. I was going to school in Miami um, pursuing, I guess at that point, just like a jazz studies degree. So, I was like studying jazz. I played in jazz band throughout school, like my whole life. Um and kind of was just like, oh yeah, whatever, it's like academic, and then kind of when I got out of high school, I got turned on to like, you know, like, Bitches Brew Era, Miles Davis stuff, and Mahavision Orchestra, and John McLaughlin, and it kind of like, reignited in my like, oh shit, like, jazz can be like a way crazier thing, so I was like, yeah, I'm like, I want to be able to play guitar like John McLaughlin, so like, I went to school for um, some jazz stuff, but they also had a a recording program at the college, and I kind of just like, cherry-picked. I ended up just sort of just cherry picking classes that like, I have interest in this and I have interest in this and I have interest in this. So I took, I took some of the recording classes and I don't know, it kind of felt like teacher, like, please don't raise your hand. Like, I know, you know, the answers to like all this stuff. So I got a little bit of experience in like a fancy studio that way, but I had kind of already like learned enough just like, just by doing it trial and error on my own in bedrooms and things like that. Yeah, that makes sense. Were you at that point, like, had you started recording other bands
0: or was it just all your own stuff at that point?
1: Yeah, to a degree, I think I I was already. It was definitely still like my projects. And then I was definitely like recording other people's stuff.
0: Yeah. Well, I'd love to even like talk about that because I think for a lot of people, especially people that are like self-taught, there's always this fear of like, starting to work with other artists and, you know, maybe even charging money for it and that kind of stuff. So what was that transition like for you to like finally make that, that jump?
1: I, I mean, that was kind of hard and like to some degree still is in a weird way because it started, you know, I started doing it because like it was fun and it was cool and I was like working on music and it's still fun and cool and I'm working on music, you know, now I know I I need to charge people to like make a living, but like, I've always I've always struggled with like, you know, like putting my foot down, like, hey, like it is this much. So definitely in the beginning, you know, like I'd, I'd be like, yeah, hey, yeah, like you know, like can I get a couple bucks for doing it? Like lugging my stuff around and things like that. And then when you know, when things started coming out sounding better, I think I was like, okay, like I, I need to charge people to do this. And then eventually I ended up landing a a staff position at a a studio in town, like the rock and roll studio in Miami, which is this was this place called the dungeon. And at that point, like I ended up, you know, I was running like real sessions and then on my own recording bands and stuff like that. So like it became a job.
0: A yeah. Yeah. I feel too that like there becomes a point where you realize like I'm buying so much gear that, and, and I'm spending so much time on these projects that like I need, I need to charge for this, you know, <laughs> just to like be able to afford it all. And
1: yeah, I mean, initially know. I think it, it felt like that. I was like, I need to charge you so like I can try to buy this mic preamp or like so I can try to buy this. Comp- like so I was trying to just like level up like, the stuff I had to try to make a better product. You know yeah. what I mean? I mean, it still still kind of feels like that way sometimes.
0: <laughs> totally, yeah. I remember, like, those early days, I would just tell people, like, look, I'm going to spend whatever money you give me on X piece of gear. Do you want to just buy that for me, and then I'll use it on your project? Like, let's just do that.
1: That's the deal, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I, I absolutely did that a couple times. I, I had definitely had a ban. I was like, hey, like, do you mind advancing me, like, the whole budget to it? Because, like, I'm going to buy this, you know. Couple compressors and two EQs and stuff, and like we're going to use them. They were like, "Yeah, hell yeah, let's do it."
0: Yeah, it's like, "Hey, well, wouldn't wouldn't you want that?" Like, I'm buying this thing because I think it's going to make my stuff sound better. So why not make it sound better for your project? You know, <laughs>
1: yeah, who, who would not, who would not be down with that?
0: Yeah, it's a pretty good pitch, I think. <laughs> so then, so yeah, you you started like you know working with these bands. You went to school, and then you talked about some live sound stuff that you're working on as well. um So how did the live sound side of things come into play?
1: Um, it began. So actually, he's one of one of my close like uh, engineering buddies in town. Is um Jonathan Nunez, and he he plays in a band called Torch, and he was also recording bands, and we were kind of like teaching each other, and kind of came up doing it together. And at some point in time, maybe it was I'm like super bad with dates, so like maybe it was like 2012, maybe even earlier. That Torch started doing some tours playing like much bigger places and they kind of ended up in a role where the jonathan at least was like hey like we need to bring up front of house engineer and for whatever reason he was just like do you want to do it i was like sure like i had never really done it i knew how to mix and stuff like that but i didn't know you know i kind of just pretended like hey how how different could it be um so i started touring with torch and you know jumping on new consoles every single day and kind of starting to learn the differences that between, you know, recording studio sessions and audio live, right? So um that's how I got into it and we started doing it and I kinda learned as I went. And um that kinda turned into I guess maybe me doing a good job and then other bands asking to take me out and it still kinda continues to this day. I do I do it you know, a couple tours a year, hopping out with somebody to do front of house or monitors and things like that. Nice.
0: How did you feel like because you had come from that experience of working in the studio where everything is a a controlled space for the most part, you know, nothing's moving and you're you're in the same environment every day. So when you made that change to the live sound side of things, um, how was that for you in terms of adapting to the difference every night and that kind of thing?
1: The difference. every Well, I get in a couple of ways, like it kind of taught me to move quicker or like be able to just kind of get my thing together quicker to get to like, all right, we need to start mixing this now in like a new environment. Like in the studio, you can tinker around with like the way a kick drum sounds for, you know, I mean, you shouldn't, but like, you know, you could, you could fuck around with it for an hour to get like the perfect kick drum sound. But like live, you like, you kind of need to like, okay, sounds like a kick drum, like boom, next let's get to the snare and like start building the whole picture quick enough to like get the show going. Right. So, but I felt that, um, I, for me at least like coming from the studio side of things I guess the fundamental skill sets of like EQing and compressing was like pretty simple like a simple that was like a simple transition the stuff you had to learn is like you know carving out like tuning PA systems and then like combating feedback and stuff like that learning like why and which frequencies like ring out when you push them too hard and like how to not <laughs> cause that to happen and things like that but then like aside from those things and you know just like having normal gain staging it feels similar to working in the studio where you just you you just do a mix you balance faders you just try to make it sound good in the space you're in yeah for sure which which may require some radical shit that you have to do because you're in like you know some concrete room that just sounds like crazy like it sounds like your your entire mix has just got a hall reverb on it so you got to you know, EQ things just like wild to make it sound okay in that space. Yeah, for sure. But yeah. Yeah. I guess that that kind of maybe transferred back and forth that that maybe that also taught me in the studio world that like you kind of can close your eyes and just turn a knob and you're like, that sounds good. Like even if it is like some insano boost on a, on an EQ or smooshing a compressor like crazy, like if it sounds good, like who cares what the settings are?
0: Like Absolutely. Yeah, it's interesting because uh, I've done the live sound side of things myself, and I definitely found that, um, yeah, like basic tools, EQ, compression, volume, all that kind of stuff, that's all the same, but it really does, like, it's more about a work, it's a workflow adjustment more than anything. I think you're, like, constantly, like you said, like, you have to you have to work really fast. You don't have all the time in the world to get the perfect kick drum sound. You just have to do it and see what you get and then be confident in it, you know? And, and I think that, yeah. uh, I think the live side of things really helps studio engineers develop a faster workflow overall because you just get used to that that speed and you yeah, like sure in the studio you can be more accurate i guess and you can spend more time on it but like you kind of learn what you can and can't get away with when you're working faster and i think that's a pretty good lesson for a lot of people
1: yeah i i i totally agree and like some i don't know if it's a i mean a positive thing when you you know maybe when you run a recording studio and are charging by the hour but like it's you know it's taught me to be able to like get up get drum sounds get like get things set up like really quickly and then like fine tune you know like once things are set up but like i you know in here like i can get drums like up and going in like under two hours and then you know then we we tweak things around to like mold it to like the vision of whatever the thing is supposed to be but yeah it's a similar thing like you just you hop on stage you put mics on things you put them in the right spots and try to get the sounds going as quickly as possible. So, I mean, the studio and in live, like if it takes you forever to do it, people are just like, what the fuck is going on with this guy?
0: (laughs) Yeah, no one wants to sit around for an hour while you get a kick sound. Yeah. (laughs) I know, I remember hearing like, I I think it was like Jerry Finn when he was working on like one of the Blink Writing 2 records, he, and uh, apparently he was like very anal about like getting the perfect sounds and would spend like the full day like getting a snare sound or something like that. And they'd be like, what the fuck is going on? Like, why are we spending so much time doing this? Like, we're just killing our budget. We're killing our energy, you know? So it's it's like, and that's, and that's a producer who, I love that guy's work, but, but uh, you know, I, as from an artist's perspective, I think it just drains a lot of the creative energy.
1: For sure, making people wait around. And then like, I mean, I, you bring up a, a point that it's just like, I've also like, never I've never really worked on like a record that has like some insane budget, so like to a degree, it's like we need to kind of start recording like we need to get get sounds to try to get them as best as we can, and like you know people are like, we have four days to make a record or three days to do whatever, and it's like as a engineer or producer, like I kind of feel i mean if you're given that role, I feel like your part of your job is to like manage that time to like you know complete the expectation of the band, right of course.
0: Yeah, there's like the uh there's obviously the the sonic side of things and then there's the energy and momentum and all the other stuff that goes into it as well. So like you have to manage all of those different facets of of the production process totally. You talked about how uh, in live sound you you know you're constantly adjusting to new rooms and I think for a lot of people you know like feeling comfortable in a space is is sometimes a difficult thing to get used to uh whether it's live or in the studio um and you know you have to have some sort of confidence in the space you're working in in order to you know trust that what you're doing behind the board is is making sense and and for you know the for the listeners and for the people in the studio that kind of thing so do you have any tips for adapting to new environments quickly and and what you would do to to help feel a little bit more confident and trust the space
1: yeah i mean in a, in a live sound situation um for me it's it's like kind of pure purely reactive so, like, if I'm in a space and it sounds weird or I don't know really what to do, like I just kind of i try to just go back to the concept of just like use your ears like if something just sounds way boomy, just like I just try to do an e q move to like even that out. I mean, I definitely in live sound places, like if there's a house engineer, like I will talk to them and be like, "Hey, is there like problematic frequencies in this room that you like automatically go to to cut and usually people are like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah like this five hundred hertz in here is crazy, so like They'll give you a little, like, most guys are nice enough to give me a head start on, like, okay, this is going to be funny, so, like, maybe tweak this a little bit and, like, leave that as your starting point. Yeah, no, that makes sense. As far as working in um, unfamiliar spaces in studio land, um, that I mean, there's sort of not really a substitute for, like, just kind of spending time in a space and learning, like, what's weird about it, like, how do things translate? I'm sure, like, everybody has that experience, you know, like... You mix in a room, you're like, sounds banging, you go to the car, you're like, what the fuck's going on? Like, so, you know, you start to do some treatment in your room and figure out like, you know, what's what you need, what you maybe need to do mixing wise to like make things translate. Stuff like that, you know what I mean?
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure. I definitely think that like, like you said, yeah, you just have to listen to stuff and you have to just get familiar with how, like listen to familiar songs so you know what to expect.
1: Yeah, I know a lot a lot of people like to do that. I mean, I, I think that's a that's definitely a good way to like figure out if, you know, your favorite AC DC song all of a sudden sounds like wildly different in a room, then you know like the room is projecting something interesting. I, I always find it kind of hard, like, yeah, maybe this room is super mid rangey, but then when you start working, like you have to keep in your head like it is very mid rangey in here. Like I, I struggle with like just being reactive to like what I'm hearing on the speakers. Mm-hmm. like it, it takes time to like learn to like teach your workflow i guess that like you need to compensate in certain areas to get it to translate Fair. because as far i mean people recording at home and I, I would even go as far as saying like people recording in like very well-tuned built-out studios pretty much all of them have weird anomalies mm-hmm. you know what i mean so almost every space like you are going to have to do some nothing is perfectly flat like you have to do some kind of Either, you know, mental gymnastics to, like, tweak your mix to get it to translate outside of the studio and stuff like that.
0: Yeah, I don't think I've ever walked into a room and been like, just, you know, listen to two seconds of music and you're like, okay, everything's going to sound incredible. You know, this room sounds perfect. I can hear it accurately. It's like, you have to adjust to it no matter what. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I've been in this space now almost a year. And, like, now I feel like, okay, I, things, things have translated in here really well from the get-go but like now i'm finally like okay like i feel like i know it i mean and it took a it took a year of me basically being in here like every single day mixing and recording stuff to like learn the room so like some of that stuff takes time
0: yeah, for sure. Yeah, there's always that challenge of like learning the room, but also learning your craft of like miking and all that other stuff that goes into it. So you're like, there's so many things to focus on, right? So it's uh
1: yeah, like in this new space, like I've now like tried putting like drum room mics and like all kinds of crazy places to see what like kind of works out. And like you know, I found spots where I can put mics that like make my room sound much bigger than it is, just you know, through audio audio tricks. Yeah, I love that one
0: one thing I wanted to ask you about in terms of your mixing is that you tend to work on a lot of like doom metal and kind of like sludgy rock and that kind of stuff. And, uh, and in those genres, there's often a lot of like really low tunings and, and a lot of it's mixed with like these really grimy distorted tones and that kind of thing. And, and I love that genre. I, l- I love that style of music. Um, but when you're working with that kind of stuff, you know, a lot of these instruments are fighting for that space. So, um, When you have so many instruments fighting for that those same frequency ranges there, like what are some of your tips there for getting clarity and and, you know, achieving that that balance between all the all the different instruments there?
1: I mean, I guess some of it is to a degree, some of it can be panning. Like if I mean definitely, you know, you have bass, maybe kick drum, like heavy guitars, like all kind of occupying some of the same like low end, low mid situation. But if you got your guitars kinda panned out and the bass in the in the middle. Then maybe you only gotta worry about the bass and the kick drum, like kind of fighting for that that space in the you know the center of your mix. But definitely kind of just sliding EQs around, like you know, sometimes I'll take um I'll open like two instances of like uh Pro Q3 or something that has like the RTA on it, and you can kind of see like, okay, bass bass is kind of fundamental tone is kind of happening here, and then on the guitars, you can kind of maybe like pull a little bit of that out so like that can the bass can kind of speak in that register above the guitars and then the guitars can sound fuller like above that or below that so then it can end up kind of sounding like one one big unit or something like that. Gotcha. So
0: you're mainly focusing on finding that, that fundamental zone for every instrument and working around that.
1: Yeah. I, th- I like to look at like what what that fundamental zone like wants to be maybe on that instrument. Like however it was recorded, like the bass, you know, feels big at 100 so like maybe on guitars like let's piece out a little bit of of 100 and go a little higher you can get away with going lower without it sounding all weird and rumbly and stuff yeah
0: and how does that apply for you in like the upper range too because when you get that saturated sound you're gonna get a lot of that harmonic content up there as well right so
1: yeah yeah i mean i it's it's a similar at least i try to maybe subconsciously like it's a similar approach is like if. You yeah, know, if all this distorted stuff—I mean, yeah—like rock, rock music is like just mid-range galore, right? So, like, everybody wants to be loud as shit and like in your face. So, to kind of do that, I feel like you got to kind of dip and boost things in just like different areas to like allow them to poke or sit back or find just find the space. Like, I, like we were saying earlier, like it's kind of it's kind of a puzzle because it like it's not just like. Guitars. Every time we boost this, we cut this. It's just whatever the material is. You got to kind of find the the pockets to like push things down a little, pull things forward a little bit to get like a even balance for things to sound like like devilish in your face all the time. (laughs) For sure.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think that there's like fundamental frequency zones that you'll get like certain characteristics of sound, but the the frequencies are going to shift as you change your tuning and as you go lower then all of a sudden everything's going to shift a little bit lower and you know as you go to standard tuning it's going to go a little bit higher so there's always a bit of an adjustment for the type of music you're working on and you know if you're working on stuff that is super compressed and saturated and distorted whatever it's like all that makes it a little bit more challenging to to find that uh, perfect range there sometimes
1: yeah it is it is challenging i still I mean, I still struggle with it sometimes. I listen to, like, other guys' mixes that do, like, heavy music stuff, and I'm like, how the hell do they make it sound like this? You know what I mean? Like, yeah. And I mean, but I I find it's just, a, everybody, everybody's everybody got their different techniques and stuff, but, like, a lot of it is that that just got to make room for things to be heard, you know what I mean? Yeah. Sometimes, sometimes I end up having to tell a lot of bands. I, I get a lot of bands that are like, they want to just, like, layer, 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 like, more guitars, the guitars sound bigger, like, this thing. But, like, you know, I've found I'm starting to find and I've found that like, yeah, you you keep adding layers and then like that's just making like everything else smaller, right? So sometimes I gotta remind people like you want this thing to sound big, like we gotta we gotta like trim the fat, like get one really dope guitar sound and like we'll pan it wide and stuff, but like if we keep adding guitar layers, the bass is gonna disappear, the snare drum's gonna disappear. Yeah.
0: So so what's your normal approach now with with layering? Like are you just are you kind of just you know, doing standard double tracking with guitars or are you doing any more than that or?
1: Yeah. I mean, I'll switch it up kind of project to project. I'll, I'll use layering sometimes in, in something like, like heavy, like rock music stuff that, you know, for the most part has like zero dynamics. Sometimes I'll use layering as a way to like make parts lift, like make it kind of seem like it got bigger. I mean, it does. I mean, it does get bigger if you start adding a bunch of more tracks in it, but yeah, like I'll use that as like a as a tool to kind of create dynamics in a way from part from part to part. Like yeah. the chorus may like chorus part may have two guitars left, two guitars right, and then when we get to like the verse part, like two of those will disappear, and it'll be a little bit more more open. Yeah, for sure. So, stuff like that.
0: I love what you said there because I think that's a really important point. It's like if if everything is just layered the entire time, then it doesn't ever really feel that much bigger. It's just it's. A constant thing but if you introduce things here and there then all of a sudden you feel like that extra content it, it like it just feels a little bit beefier or like a little warmer in certain sections
1: yeah it gets a it gets a lift yeah it's a yeah i mean to me it's like a way to create dynamics in like more or less like dynamicless music sometimes you know what i mean
0: yeah no, that's a good way of looking at it for sure yeah because your mix isn't going to get any wider necessarily it's just it's you know if you're you only have hard left and right <laughs>
1: for the most part you're just going to create more competing frequencies like yeah
0: it just becomes denser maybe is a a good way of looking at it
1: yeah yeah and sometimes that can be used as like a cool effect like if you don't want guitars to be like very like there's that one and there's that one you start layering it a little bit and like you just kind of have this like wall of wall of guitar that like you know has, has an effect a similar way of like stacking vocals you know what i mean like it doesn't sound as direct. You start to get like this blur of vocals from the, you know, the natural chorusing and phasing stuff that kind of happens. Mm-hmm. Like you can do that with yeah, like, kind of any mid-range instrument, I suppose. Like,
0: Well, I guess one reason why a lot of people like to layer stuff is because they, they feel like it does add that denseness to a mix. And um, another way that a lot of people get around that is sometimes just saturating their tracks and, and using the harmonic content in that regard. to, to make things feel bigger. Um, and that was one thing I, I felt like when I listened to your mixes, like I could, I felt like I heard a lot of quite a bit of use of saturation in there. Um, first off, do you feel like that's accurate or am I? Yeah, am yeah, I? yeah, definitely. Okay. <laughs> I love,
1: I love, I love things sounding kind of dirty a little bit.
0: Yeah, Yeah. So when it comes to using saturation in your mixes, like, are there any specific tools that you like to use for that kind of thing?
1: Um, I guess I've, I've. There are ones that are that are killer. I feel like I've always been on like this like endless crusade of like find, finding ones. In a weird way, like I finally have just settled on it. Like I've always in the digital world, I've always tried to find like these you know the plugins that do tape saturation. Right, it's like I love the way tape saturation sounds. And I feel like I've tried all of them, and some of them are great, but they don't really sound like tape. So I've kind of ended up. I actually I. I just picked up like a 24 track machine recently, just because I was like, you know what? If I want the tape saturation thing, like I just need actual tape.
0: Yeah, one more tape can you get.
1: <laughs> but ones that I do really like are, um, I mean, like Decapitator is one that I'm sure everybody uses. That 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 sounds really good. Um, I use satin. I use the Crane Song Phoenix sometimes. Like UAD um, ATR 102 on mixed bus stuff sometimes sounds sounds really badass and then um some of it some of it i kind of get in the tracking phase you know what i mean like I definitely a lot sometimes a lot of the sounds like going in have a saturated quality or at least have like some of that vibe you know using outboard gear and using i have like a decent collection of like nice nice preamps that like you know you can kind of push them a little hard and get definitely like overtones and things coming out of them on the way in that's cool
0: yeah i was gonna i was curious about that if you were tracking that way and committing to those sounds early on um i, I feel like yeah, totally. one thing one one definite hesitation i hear from a lot of people all the time is that like you know they're they're afraid to commit the sounds on the way in especially when it comes to things like saturation where like they, you know they don't want to drive a preamp too hard because they you know they're afraid that maybe they'll slam it too hard and back themselves in a corner uh, so i'm curious to know your thoughts on that and and how you approach that
1: yeah i mean i've I've definitely like bit myself in the ass a couple times for sure. I'm definitely like conservative enough like i mean I'll, I'll sometimes I will take things to like okay there there it's bad and like i'll not I'll do a click back from there just to like be like, okay, like you know, we're colored but we're not you know blown up and like I'll definitely take that approach more more so now like on compression on the way in. I definitely have a lighter touch. Because I, you know, you can always manipulate it afterwards, but I have many, many times like, I'm going to smash these room mics trying to get a big room sound. And then the tempo is totally not right for the compressor setting. And like, I just, you know, the room mics are just destroyed and like not usable and like, (laughs) oops, you know?
0: Yeah. (laughs) Hey, sometimes you have to learn from those mistakes to to know what you're going to do next time, right?
1: Yeah. I mean, every, everybody I think has to go through that. I mean, I don't know definitely at first, like I was timid to even do anything cause I didn't think that was the way. And then like, I, you know, at some point, like I, I realized like, yo, the trick to this is like, for, for me, the trick is like, yeah, try to make it sound as close as you can to like what is finished on the way in. And then once you're, you know, then once it's all tracked, you're kind of like faders up and you're like, well, this kind of sounds like a record already. So like, let's, you know, like now let's take it the to the next step. I found it, if, if I was just real conservative on the way in, like I have to do a bunch of processing to get it to a, point that then needs to be taken farther so it, it almost like it knocks a step out
0: yeah for sure at that point you almost have to like guess if the sound's going to work at that point you know it's like m- why not just get it right at the source because the closer you get it to the how you want it to sound in the end like it just eliminates any potential that you're not going to get the right sound you know <laughs> like
1: yeah 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 a lot of it is aimed even I, f- I feel like a lot of the ways i try i try to work is a lot of it is aimed just that like like a guitar amp if you go stand in front of it in the room you're like all right that sounds badass and then you come in here and then you hear whatever microphones on it and you're like that doesn't sound like that how can we make what's coming out of the speakers sound like what's happening in the room so you're just kind of trying to mimic from each side of the glass in a way same 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 with drums I, i think kind of like whatever you hear standing in there like sounds pretty good so then on this side of the glass you're just trying to like mimic it in a way for sure
0: yeah, it's interesting you bring that up because definitely, you know, a microphone right against a speaker sounds totally different than it does in the room. Um, so, do you ever like use room mics and stuff like that for guitars to get a little bit more of that roomy sound? Or is it more just like, you know, maybe backing the, the close mic off a little bit more?
1: It'll be a little bit of backing the close mic off, but like I definitely, I definitely am a fan of like throwing room mics up on like kind of almost every source, really. It, it, whether it gets used or not is one thing, but um yeah i'll 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 close my guitars like i mean i do like the way that sounds but yeah i'll throw a mic in the back of the room cool like not even in any particular fashion like it could just be a 57 like just thrown in the corner and just grabbed up because blend those in and like you do get a sense of like there's there's a space
0: nice love that well it's interesting because like one element of your mixes that i really really like is like is the um the roominess of your tracks, but in particular with drums. Like I find that you do a really great job of getting your drums to sound really wide and really roomy. Um, And it's, it kind of makes you feel like you're in the room with a drummer, which as a drummer myself, I appreciate that. Um, And and I'm curious to know, like when it comes to getting a great uh, drum room sound, what's your go-to approach with that?
1: Um, I kind of, I just, I've been kind of bouncing around. At one point, I feel like I, I had it and like it was coming out good and then i was like oh man like similar thing like i'd hear other people's recordings and i'm like how the fuck do they get these like massive room sounds so like i would either ask them what they do or try different things but um lately it's just you know i usually have a stereo it's been usually like the r88 like stereo ribbon i'll have it about i don't know five six feet out in front of the drums and then i'll also have at least a stereo pair if not two um of something else like much farther in the room, sometimes in just weird spots where I can get as far away from the drum kit as possible. And um, I'll experiment back and forth with either not really compressing those or like trying to see if I can smash them and squeeze some ambience out of them. I'll definitely, sometimes I definitely actually send room mics. Uh, the room mics that I recorded, I will send those to an additional reverb like it like almost expands the space even more there's actually like some really good like the sunset sound reverb and the like the ocean way reverb like spaces that were like recording okay. studios that were modeled in spaces I'll send my room mics to like stuff like that and like tuck that in and it just kind of like even further like seems to like open open things up and have like a very realistic perspective of a drum drum room you know what I mean I love that yeah when you're working on your room mics like, what's your...
0: What ultimately are you looking for in the room mic sound?
1: Maybe to some degree, just, like, what it kind of sounds like standing in the room with the drum kit. Obviously, like, the microphones, like, pick things up different than your ears do in the space. So, usually, usually I'm just trying to, like, make sure that there's not just crazy, washy cymbal stuff, which is just, like, the bane of room mics. You know what I mean? As soon as you start to compress them, just the cymbals just go, like, like, crazy, so when i'm recording them i'll usually try to like notch like some harsh harsh frequencies out and then keep it just pretty pretty chill and then later in like mixing stage like i'll attempt to see if like maybe i can smash them and get some character out of it that way or sometimes you have to just leave them alone depending on the tempo of the music too sometimes like just room mic stuff just doesn't really work sometimes when it's not working and things are like too fast i'll actually use like a ambient sample on the on the snare sometimes and just like tuck that in a little bit so you get a little bit of like the dispersion it feels like on snare hits which you're not going to be able to mm. at least I haven't sometimes I'm not able to pull out of like the actual organic room mics I recorded just cuz things are just moving way way too quickly
0: <laughs> yeah of course you get like you got all your symbols and all that stuff yeah yeah un- unless you're tracking shells separate from symbols like you really can't isolate a specific element of the of the sound in the room. So
1: No, there's there's yeah. tricks to like duck, you know, duck symbols out. Like you can do that thing where like, you know, you you send the the snare track, put like gates on you can put like gates on the room mics and send the snare track into the side chain of a gate and like so the room mics like kind of expand when just like the snare hits or something like that. That's a way to kind of reduce like some symbol symbol situations in room mics. Absolutely. But a similar thing it's like temp, tempo kind of tempo dependent and like if things are just like you got like a thrash beat going on, like that's not going to work at all for just, sure. Like, <laughs> the, the attack and release is just going to like bug out. Yeah, of
0: course. Yeah, I'm always curious when it comes to room mics because, like, you know, I, I just think there's so many different ways you can approach room mics. It's it's like overheads, right? Some people look at overheads as like cymbal mics and don't really want the low end in there, and then other people want the full kit sound. Um, and then the same thing applies to room mics. Some people like it to to be the thing that adds all the dirt and like the compression and the saturation and stuff. And then other people just want like a little bit of top end, t- top end dispersion, you know? So it's, uh, there's so many different ways to approach it.
1: It is. There's, there's so many different ways. And like, I, you know, I'm a, I'm a fan. I'm a fan of other records and like, I'm a fan of other engineers. And like, I'm always impressed. Like my sounds other people get. And, you know, I guess I'm bold enough to sometimes just email other people. and am like, yo, how the, how the hell are you getting these sounds? And like, I've gotten just crazy different answers from like, Oh like I don't really do much. Like I just turn them up. There's nothing going on to like a, yeah, I use like eight eight pairs of room mics and I destroy all of them with compression. <laughs> and like both have like these incredible results. So like there is there is like a wide spectrum of like what you can do to achieve those type those types of sounds, you know what I mean? Of course.
0: Well, you talked about sending your room mics to like reverb plugins, which I think is really cool and that definitely makes a lot of sense that it then makes your room sound even bigger than it may be do you ever just rely on straight reverb for for your drum sounds
1: yeah if i'm sent things maybe that like to, to mix for example that like don't have a room mic or don't the room mic is is you know not not up to par um yeah i'll definitely i'll definitely use some of some of the similar ones that i'll, I'll use even on my you know drum room mics like i'll use these things that kind of mimic spaces in, in studios and stuff like that yeah, I mean you know plates, plates and halls and stuff like have their have their place in there too.
0: Yeah, you can never go wrong with a, a good plate, but but yeah, I, I'm definitely like at least for myself these days, I'm definitely leaning into a lot more of those room simulation sounds. And there's that new Universal Audio Sound City one that sounds awesome now. Yeah, I, yeah, I, have,
1: I haven't tried that one, but you know, I'm I'm absolutely curious to hear what it sounds like. So I watched I saw, I saw the little demo on it, you know.
0: Yeah, you mentioned the sunset sound one and that, and that one works great too like I, I've definitely been leaning heavily into that for a long time and the ocean way one there's lot, there's lots of good ones out there
1: yeah it's a it's a cool way too because like like I said like I've, I've been in this space like a year and like I'm kind of trying to figure it out and um now I feel pretty good about it but like there's definitely I've done some drum recordings where like eh, maybe those that room mic position seemed like a good idea and wasn't didn't sound so good but like me then double kind of sending those to like one of those plugins makes my my room now sound better and tuned yeah absolutely yeah i think that's a kind of a pretty cool tip that like if you're in if you're recording it in a suboptimal space kind of like sending your 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 room sounds to like one of those like very nice sounding rooms and kind of give you know your room like a, a, a decent a decent sound <laughs> when perhaps you didn't you didn't have that you know
0: Yeah, for sure. If you're working in a small room, like you're not going to have the depth and size of a big room to begin with. Like, you know, it's so you have to you have to find ways to work around that.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the the other trick is like uh, it's kind of like the Steve Albini thing. Like you can just take the room mic and delay it, like delay it a bunch of milliseconds to like simulate, you know, time traveling to reach that microphone farther, like as if you had a bigger room.
0: Yeah. Well, you also talked about how you'll sometimes put mics in weird positions. And I definitely think that's a big part of it, too. Like sometimes just like placing a mic as far away from a drum kit or facing away from it or in a in a corner or against a wall or whatever, like those little things sometimes can make a really big impact and make your room sound a lot bigger, too.
1: Yeah. I mean, you could there's also like I've tried them maybe a couple times, but there's like all those weird techniques you can do. Like you could stick like a mic in like a, like a garden hose or something and like run it around the drum kit, which is like very, very close to the drum kit. But like the, you know, the sound traveling down this tube, like sounds like a room, like it makes it sound like a space, like a kind of other, other otherworldly space. Yeah,
0: absolutely. That's, that's the uh, Sylvia Massey technique there.
1: Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, absolutely.
0: I I actually just found, uh, my daughter was like going through my bookshelf and just ripping books off the wall. and, And she happened to Take down my Sylvia Massey book and open open it up to like the drum section. I was like, oh yeah, like there's so many cool things here, <laughs> you know. So uh, that, that it was kind of funny you mentioned that because it was fresh on my mind. But um, yeah, I mean, there's, if hey, anyone looking for like creative ideas for drums, like check out that book. Uh, I think it's called
1: Recording Unhinged. Yeah, that, that book is is really cool. I, I've read I've read through some of that and it's definitely like sparked like oh yeah, like yeah you know, see people like putting mics and condoms and buckets of water and stuff like that just like trying to create just like unnatural spaces yeah. but it is like essentially like creating like room sounds like weird who fucking knows what it is room sounds you know what I mean?
0: yeah for sure love it well um another thing i wanted to ask you about was uh your band capsule you guys just released yeah. a brand new ep and uh i, I was and, and i know you produced that you you recorded and mixed it um can you tell us a little bit about the making of that record and and how it all came together
1: yeah i mean we we started the band, the band started in about 2005 and we we did it for a lot of years, like put out two full-lengths and like another EP and then it's around 2014 or so, 2015 maybe, by 2014, we just I mean, I guess maybe kind of life just started happening. A couple of the guys moved to different parts of the country and we you know, we just we just kind of simmered off and didn't do it for a long time, but um uh we all kind of started playing together in another project recently. Colin, the guitar player, kind of wrote a batch of songs and I did a recording project with him. This uh this project was called Viral Sun. It was just me and Colin that kinda like did the whole record, like as a recording project together. Like me and him played all the instruments on it and stuff, mostly Colin. But um we wanted to play some shows and Colin basically was just like, yo, like the only guys I know that could probably play this stuff was basically the lineup of capsule. So we actually like, all got together to play c- Colin songs and did a couple shows out on the West coast. And, um, you know, we kind of all realized like, man, like kind of miss doing this with all you guys. Like we do it really well. So, um, uh, we started discussing like, yo, maybe we should like write some songs and we got an offer to go play, um, this festival in Gainesville, Florida called the, called the fest, which we had played many times over the years, um, in the past. Um, so we kind of made plans to do that. And, uh eric kind of came up with a a batch of songs and showed it to everybody and we just you know started started working on them got nice. back in the studio got back in the studio
0: love it man and how was it uh like did you record all the other records too or was this like your first
1: the the blue record was actually uh jonathan nunez from from torch did that one but i i did the no ghost one and the ep after that gotcha
0: well, I, I know like this record here was was self-produced and and I was kind of curious to dig into that a little bit because I know that a lot of musicians sometimes have a hard time producing their own material because they're either like very overcritical of their music or they're either too, or, or they're too married to their ideas to sometimes want to make changes to like best suit the song and that kind of stuff. So I'm curious to know like what that approach was like for you, um, you know, with this record, like d- did you feel like, you know, it was easy to self-produce it and, or was it just kind of you know, was it more of a challenge?
1: Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm guilty of definitely struggling with that, that like, uh, being, being too close to it sometimes being too close to be like objective in, in certain, in certain ways. But, um, it was like, I guess like what we were talking about before is I actually, I got into recording basically to kind of like record the projects I was like working on. And probably the first one I ever do did was, was me, Eric and Colin. It was like basically the same guys that are in capsule, so I've kind. It's like kind of my entire recording career has been like, just recording the stuff that we've all come up with together. So, fair doing it again was just like completely familiar territory. You know what I mean? I think we do a good job of like, I got an idea, Eric's got an idea, Colin's got an idea. We just we just shoot it out there and like, you know, some things some things stick, some things don't. Yeah, I love it. As far as like self producing it, I think like you know we all do a good job of you know hearing everybody's ideas and trying them and just you know everybody just agreeing like on this is working this isn't working but then when it comes down to like you know me mixing it and stuff like that i just i drive myself fucking crazy
0: (laughs) well i was gonna say like you know it's one thing to have like one person working on their own music but then to have a whole band of people that are also like trying to self-produce it and provide their input i imagine that that would definitely uh prolong the, the the uh the process a little bit more and maybe you know create it's some... not
1: it's not too bad actually like you know rec- writing it and recording it like that's definitely like the collaborative side of things but then like once that's all done like i basically just kind of go into my hole and try to try to mix it and try to make it sound good and like i'll send it to the guys and they'll have to you know they'll have their normal notes like like any other project like yo like this thing should come up or i feel it should come up or it should be more reverby or whatever Mm-hmm. But yeah, like, I'll just get in. I'll, then that's the point that usually like, I've been so close to the record, like playing on it, recording it all that I'm just like, is brighter, better is darker, better? <laughs> like, I, I don't know. And like, I will sometimes bounce it off other people. I'm like, yo, is this sounding like shit or not? Like, yeah, cool. So then ultimately, how do you know when you're done? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I try to set some, I try to set some deadlines you can never really be done, right? Like I've I've heard in some of your other interviews, like everybody can say this. It's like you you can mix forever. Like, you know, you you do it for a week, and then the next week, maybe you heard some other record, and you're inspired by like what other sounds, and now you mold everything in a different direction. And like you literally can do that to the end of time, probably. You know, so like I sometimes try to give myself like a deadline. Like, all right, like I have to have some like th- on this one. Like I set a mastering date. I literally was like, this is gonna be the mastering date. Like I have to have the mix. I have to be done by that. I could have moved the mastering date, but I tell myself I can't. So,
0: yeah, no, that, that's a good thing. I mean, if you're just pushing your deadlines and you don't really have a deadline, right? <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think if I don't set myself a deadline, like I'll just like I'll like it for a couple days, and then I'll hear it again, and I'll be like, "This sounds like shit," and I'll want to go back to it and change something, and like I will just go in that cycle for like forever. So, like at the end of the day, I think all music and all mixes really like if the feeling is there, like if it feels good and it feels like energetic and. You know, like that's that's what really people are going to respond to, right? So, and then it's done, and then, then it's then it's cool for, yeah. to be heard by other people, I guess.
0: No, I agree with that. I, I think it's just hard for people to, especially when it's their own music, to be that critical of it, you know, and to to, or to be able to acknowledge, like, okay, the energy is here and it has been here this whole time. Like, I need to stop now, you know, that kind of thing.
1: Yeah, like I, I think a pro, like, um, at least with us and other, I mean, other bands I record too, is like the energy is kind of pumped into how you record it, like getting the right takes and tracks and like, it's how, how it's played is like what has like the, the, the thing, the mixing and that type of stuff is just like plating, plating the food. You know what I mean? So it's
0: a a presentation. Yeah. 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 So then ultimately like how, how long do you think it takes you normally to, to finish a mix?
1: Um, I don't know probably like if I were to kind of add it all up, then more or less it'd probably be about like a day, a day, a song, or something like that. i I like to kind of like work on stuff, like leave it for a second, kind of come back to it. i kind of I like to jump around a bit because I find if i um if I work on something just like straight for ten hours, like I'll probably have had landed in a spot that was like really good, and like I will go past it and I'll just be like, shit. like I was good like three hours ago. So I've kind of started to practice this this way of just like working on it for a bit, like, you know, leave it and like review like, okay, then this is where I need to go from from there and like just kind of incrementally like get, get to a spot that feels like, okay, I think this is a, a a final product. Yeah.
0: Do you ever like save mixes like halfway through or like, you know, have like checkpoints or is it just like you just work until you think you've got it and you, you get like one export?
1: Yeah, I think if I if I'm in a spot where I'm like, this feels pretty good i'll do a A lot of times i'll do like a save as of the session like maybe i'll do a bounce of it and like i'll do a save as of the session and like i'll keep working on it because maybe i'm after a certain thing and you know there are definitely times where like a day or two later like i'll compare them and i'll be like oh like the one that was like halfway through the day was like definitely way better so like i'll just reopen that one and like stay jump off from there again yeah for sure maybe not go as far you know it's always interesting, I
0: find, like, when people take breaks with stuff, like, I, I try not to do it myself, because I've, I've personally found that, like, whenever I take a break, I can come back to something a day or two later, and, like, I'm just in a different headspace. And I think you kind of mentioned that earlier, it's like, you know, sometimes you come back to it a little bit later, and you got some new song that's in your head, and, like, you, you know, it steers you in a different direction, that kind of thing. Um, I've always found it difficult to, like you know, come back a couple of days later. Um, so for me, it's like, I always just set a deadline. I'm like, okay, like I'm giving myself whatever, five hours, whatever it is, and then let's just do it, you know, and bounce it out at that point.
1: Yeah, I don't know. I Sometimes I find that like, you know, I'll work on it and like, I'll feel good about it. And then like the next day I'll hear it fresh or something. And like, since I'm fresh, like instantly I'll be like, okay, like I need to just do this, this, and this. And then it's like, maybe that, maybe that's all, that's all. So I mean, sometimes I find even like, I hear things differently on different days. Like even like the same recording, like sometimes something will sound like brighter to me on a a different day. Like it could be, it could have to do with like my sinuses and you know, who who knows? Like, yeah, I like to leave myself at least like two, at least two days of like hearing it to like make sure like, you know what? Like it it was good on Monday and Tuesday, so it's probably good. Yeah. Fair. (laughs) (laughs) Right
0: on, man. Well, all this has been amazing to like learn more about your process. um you know, I'd love to kind of just wrap it up with one last question, which is you know at the end of the day, like what ultimately makes a great mix in your mind?
1: um I think I mean, I guess maybe I kind of said it a couple questions ago. It's just I think if like the energy there and like the the message and like the feeling of what's trying to get across is like is happening, then ultimately like that that is a a good mix, right? I mean, I think everybody's definition of like what sounds good like can be like wildly different you know what i mean like i mean there are tons of recordings that like i love that maybe don't sound very good like by like a audiophile perspective but like i don't know they sound like they make me feel something so it is a good mix right
0: Mm -hmm. yeah that's true of course And, and uh yeah, I, I I always go back to like old like Motown recordings and stuff like that. Like to me like those recordings sound horrible by today's standards, but like they they make you feel something.
1: Yeah, and they and they sound so cool. Like they just sound so good. Like they I they sound good, but like same thing like by definition they're not like hi-fi recordings, right? Like Yeah. Yeah, it's totally totally true
0: totally man right on man dude this has been great i've i've really enjoyed learning a lot more about your process um, if people want to learn more about you your band uh, what's the best place for them to to do
1: that um for me i have a website uh, it's just ryanhaft.com or you could uh, i have i'm on instagram i guess pretty decently which is just uh, ryan_haft um and then as far as capsule you could um we have a capsule. the dot, uh, dot band on instagram and We're on Bandcamp and it's on the the streaming stuff all over the place. Cool. I'll definitely add those links in the show notes too. I think think that's it. (laughs) Right on, man.
0: Cool, dude. Well, I appreciate you being on here. Thank you so much.
1: No, thank you for having me.
0: So that was my interview with Ryan Haft, and I really enjoyed that. I really enjoyed getting into some of the creative room mic techniques when it comes to getting great drum sounds. And I love that he mentioned some of the Sylvia Massey techniques with the garden hose and stuff like that. If you're interested in learning more about Sylvia's techniques... On episode 17 of the podcast, I interviewed her. And if you don't want to scroll all the way back to episode 17 on your podcast list, we actually did a replay of that episode more recently on episode 168. So check out that interview there because Sylvia gets into a lot of really cool, crazy techniques that she likes to use in her productions. But yeah, I thought it was really fun to talk with Ryan about that because if you listen to any of his recordings, his drums always sound massive. And him and I were chatting about this after the podcast, but you know, it can be a challenge to get your drums to sound really big, especially when you're working in smaller spaces. But sometimes it really comes down to these creative techniques and creative mic positions that don't seem like they should make sense. Sometimes those are the coolest sounds. So you definitely want to be experimenting when it comes to getting roomy sounds. Um, And you know, like you've talked about in this episode, you can apply the same stuff to guitars as well. That sometimes can give you a really cool character too. So I love that he got into that as well. I also thought it was fun to chat about, you know, things like saturation and driving mic preamps and knowing how far to go and making mistakes too, because I think that that's a really important thing too. You're going to make mistakes along the way. And sometimes those mistakes end up being happy mistakes and they end up leading to something really cool. And sometimes you're going to learn what not to do in the future. But I think when it comes to saturation and committing to saturation on the way in, it's definitely one of those things you have to play with. And you do have to experiment to see what ultimately works best for your songs. And the more you start working on music, the more you commit to sounds, the more you're going to learn what you can and can't get away with or what you should maybe play it a little bit more conservative with, right? So I, I love that he got into all of that stuff there too. And I also really enjoy that we talked about layering tracks and how sometimes if you are going to be using layering, you want to be very strategic with it because they can add a sense of dynamics to so dynamicless mixes. So yeah, I love that he talked about that as well. So this was a really fun episode. I really enjoyed this and it was great to learn a lot more from his process and I hope that you enjoyed it as well. And if you did, please make sure to subscribe to the podcast. That way you're notified about all new episodes as they go live each and every Wednesday morning. We've got tons of great episodes lined up, so you definitely don't want to miss out on that. And if you're looking for help with your mixes and you're not sure of what steps to take during the recording, editing, or mixing processes in order to get your songs to sound just as good as your favorite recordings, like if you're tired of your songs sounding like demos and never quite meeting the pro level that you expect your tracks to sound like, then I would absolutely love to help you out. And inside of my coaching program called Amplitude, I work one-on-one with with my students helping them go through the entire process of getting their tracks sounding pro. And inside of this program, not only are you going to get access to an exclusive library of video training that walks you through everything you need to know from beginning to end, but also you're going to get personalized feedback on your tracks. So once you've started recording them and editing them and mixing them, if you want feedback on whether they sound good or what steps you should be taking to help enhance them even further, that's exactly what you're going to get inside of this program. This whole program is designed to help you get your song sounding the way you want, and I'm here to help you throughout that entire process to show you the steps needed to get you there. So if you're interested in learning more about that, make sure to visit MasterYourMix.com forward slash Amplitude, and on that page, you'll find all the details of the program. And then I'd love to hop on a call with you to learn more about your processes, your goals, in order to make sure that this program is actually a good fit for you. I only work with people who I truly believe I can help. And if you're not a good fit, I will absolutely let you know. But if you are a good fit, then I would love to work with you to help you achieve your goals and to help you make amazing sounding music. So once again, if you're interested in learning more about that program, make sure to visit MasterYourMix.com forward slash Amplitude, and you can find all the details there. So with that said, we've reached the end of this episode. Thank you so much for sticking around to the very end, and I can't wait to chat with you in the next one. We'll talk soon. Have a good one thanks for listening to the master your mix podcast to have your questions answered submit your questions to questions at masteryourmix.com please go to itunes and subscribe and leave a review and for more information on how you can improve your mixes visit masteryourmix.com